2 Samuel chapter 3. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, of the son of Machir, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephathtia, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been, stre- had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ahir. And Ish-bosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ish-bosheth had said. said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not for David and what the Lord promised an oath, him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbotheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messages on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbotheth of son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I am betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted (coughs) to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron, because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king, and the king had sent him away, and that he'd gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. 
and they brought him back to the cistern at Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak to him privately. And there to avenge the brother of his sorry, to avenge the blood of his brother Asiel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall on my head, fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he killed their brother Asiel in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the buyer. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over him again. Then they all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zerurah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his deeds. We are going through to Samuel in our church at home, hence my head's been in it. And when uh, I was considering what to preach, um, I just thought, well, where do I go? And I think God's word, I hope you believe this, all of God's word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So no less the Old Testament as the new, um, even if we have to do a little bit more hard work at getting through into the Old Testament of where we are. And I appreciate I'm plundering us into chapter 3 of to Samuel. I've got some PowerPoints and we'll, we'll look at it under three headings and then I'll end up with, a, at the end of the sermon, four sort of applicatory points for us, things to think about, to take home, um, based upon uh, Joab, Abner and David, but also upon God's great plan. But let me just uh, appreciate uh, Tim reading that um, uh, difficult passage, um, but just to get us up to speed, Saul has died uh, one Samuel. This, this part doesn't count as a sermon, okay? Uh, this is just my introductory notes. <laughs> um, the, Saul and Jonathan have died. You can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Um, and so then there's the, the usual power struggle. You will know from 1 Samuel 16 that uh, the youngest of Jesse, the sheep keeper, is already been chosen by Samuel the prophet, by God himself, to be the Lord's anointed. 
But of course, that's not just taking place like that. Saul is jealous. He chases after David, tries to kill him and all of that sort of stuff. Um, But we get to the end where Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. So one would think that um, it would be a normal, natural Obvious next step that David would become king. Well, you find that he is anointed over Judah. Uh, You find that in chapter 2. But what you also find is Abner, one of the blokes that we uh, heard in chapter 3, has taken it upon himself to um, install Ishbosheth, one of the sons of Saul, as king over the northern tribes. Okay? And. and uh, so you've got the northern 11 tribes and, uh, with Ishbosheth over them, uh, the house of Saul, and the house of David over Judah, okay? And there's skirmishes uh, as, as uh, Abner brings the war and army down to do a bit of a skirmish. It's a funny little passage. But then we find chapter 3, verse 1, there is war, war uh, between the house of Saul and the house of David. And that's kind of where we pick it up. It's a lengthy war. And as Tim cited, rightly so, it's a civil war. They're not fighting against the Philistines, the Egyptians, or future, the Assyrians, or Babylonians. This is a civil war. This is God's covenant people at fighting at one another. And so we might be sort of scratching our heads. So what on earth could this Old Testament passage so, so many years ago in such a different culture have to do with us in 21st century English life. Well, I think there are points of application, and we will get to them at the end, so bear with. Well, let's look at this. Um, we begin by seeing uh, in chapter 3, verse 1 to 11, we see the strengthening of the house of David. I think that's what we're meant to see. The war is long and there will be many casualties. And yet we're told that the house of Saul, verse 1, grows weaker and the house of David grows stronger. Uh, verse 2 to 5, the narrator Uh, tells us uh, how this is seen. It's seen uh, by the growth of his own family. I think that's what we're meant to see, that David's family is growing stronger and stronger. Uh, But also that the writer, though not condoning David taking many wives, he does want us to see that some of these wives taken are strategic, political, uh, uh, for the life of the king. But then verse 6, the zoom lens goes back in onto this bloke called Abner. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. He's the guy that installed Ishbosheth. He is the guy uh, that advanced south to the borders of Judah to try to take Judah in chapter 2. He is chased out of that and... Um, he is chased uh, by Ashiel. This is quite important, chapter 2, Ashiel. And Abner seems to be saying, stop chasing me. Refuse. Stop your pursuit. Give it up in chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, but in the end, he shoves his butt of his spear, the butt of his spear into Ashiel's guts and he dies. Ashiel has two brothers, Joab, who is important in our chapter 3, and Abishai. They take up the pursuit of Abner, 
And he constantly is saying, look, stop it. There's bitterness will grow. Abner seems to be trying to avoid more bloodshed. And eventually, his uh, uh, pleas are heard. And um, uh, Joab and Abishai stop the pursuit. And Abner goes his way. And so do the others. Um, But in verse 6, Abner is still trying to strengthen his position. Um, but Ibosheth, Ishbosheth, sorry, verse 7, calls him out, calls Abner out as sleeping with one of his uh, father's concubines. So verse 7, now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ai, however you say that. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Uh, in other words, Ishbosheth is saying to Abner, look, you're trying to get a handle on the monarchy. You're trying to grab a handle upon the throne. That's kind of what's going on here. And verse 8, Abner is very angry at this. Abner is very incensed by this accusation. We don't know whether he did sleep with her or we, if, he, if, uh, if he didn't. We're not told that in the text. But what we are told is that he's got very angry. And now he either defends his position from a guilt perspective or defends his position from unjustly treated. We're not sure. But he speaks of his loyalty to the house of Saul. And with his anger, with his uh, enraged, he says, that's it. Enough's enough. Verse 9 and 10, he says, I am going to David. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath with, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got to uh, we'll pick up on this in the application. But Abner knows when he installs Ishbosheth, uh, king of Israel, that God has promised the rule and the reign to uh, uh, the house of David. But he, he here, through the accusation, whether he's guilty or not, he is incensed. And therefore he turns and he goes to the house of David. He turns to God's anointing king. And there's nothing that Ishbosheth, this puppet king of the north, can do about it, verse 11. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. That's our first scene. The second scene um, is Abner feasts with the true king. So Abner stays true to his word. He sends, verse 12, messengers on on his behalf down to David. And he asks this question, whose land is this? In other words, um, to who does this land belong to except you, David? That's kind of the tense of this question. And he requests, verse 12, to make a covenant with David. That's what the word agreement is. Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Well, David agrees. David puts, verse 13, a condition on it that Michael, the daughter of Saul, should come over and uh, he was betrothed to her, verse uh, 14, uh, for the price of 100 Philistine foreskins, um, and I want to have my wife back. I mean, it's a tragic few verses, but the point is tragic because Palatiel is the husband of um, of uh, Michal, and she's, he's just following behind, going, well, where's my wife going until someone sends him back home? But I think the point is here, is the narrator uh, wants us to see that, um, that uh, uh, David 
is a peacemaker and seeking to bring unity between the house of Saul and the house of David. Uh, because um, when uh, David had every right to uh, have his wife with him, but he could have punished her, could have treated her with, with violence or even murder, but he's, he's a peaceful king. It's heartbreaking for Palatiel, but he's treating the situation with concern of God's kingdom that looks like a mustard seed as he rules over it just over Judah. But as he seeks to see this kingdom of God grow to bring unity between north and south, Dan to Bathsheba. Uh, David is concerned with justice to have his wife back, but also treats those of Saul's household with mercy and with God's kingdom purposes in mind. And so we get up to verse 17, and Abner then disappears on a preaching conference, doesn't he? A preaching tour. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and uh, begins to tell about David the king. He's on a preaching tour to the elders of Israel, verse 17 and 18, reminding them of what the Lord has promised, what the Lord has said. And that the Lord will fulfill his word, fulfill his promise, and David will be king over all of Israel. The evidence of that is verse 18. He is the one, David is the rescuer. By my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And so we're building up a picture of this anointed king. He's, he's anointed by Samuel in 1, uh, 1 Samuel 16. And over Judah, this uh, kingdom that's like a mustard seed. It looks small, it looks irrelevant, but it's growing. And this, this anointed uh, king is the savior, the rescuer of the people of God from the Philistines in all the hand of their enemies. And so Abner, verse 18, uh, sorry, uh, verse 19, then heads to the Benjaminites in person. Why select the Benjaminites? Because Saul was a Benjaminite. He wants to make sure that, Abner wants to make sure that the Benjaminites know that King David will be king over all. And then Abner approaches Hebron, verse 19, second half. Then he went to Hebron. I wonder what his reception will be. Remember last time he took a band of blokes to have a little skirmish that ends up all out war and a lot of bloodshed. Abner approaches Hebron. How will David respond? Will he seek revenge? Will David strike down the one who imposed Ishbosheth as the puppet king over the northern tribes? Will he scold Abner and send him and banish him out of the country to no longer live in the land of promise? What do you reckon he should do? I guess that depends where we're coming from, really, doesn't it? Well, look what, um, uh, look what happens, verse 20. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. 
Doesn't that strike you as odd? Isn't that slightly surprising? Isn't that strange? Shouldn't David have pulled the sword at this rebellious Abner, this installer of Ishbosheth? Shouldn't David draw out the, the hard guns? You know, let's face it, uh, the northern, uh, the, 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 the house of Saul has been a constant thorn in David's flesh, chasing him through the wilderness and Gedi in the, uh, the Dead Sea area. But no, this is a time of a celebration, of a banquet, of a feast. Because isn't Abner turned? Hasn't Abner turned to now God's king? And that is a time for feasting in the presence of the king. Well, the narrator doesn't hang us about there. Verse 21, then Abner said to Saul, oh, let me carry on the preaching tour, by the way. Let me go and preach the good news about the covenant that's to be made with the king and his people. And so Abner leaves, not with a threat, not with a sinister plan, not with David's sword ready to pierce, but in verse 21, what does it say? So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Isn't that surprising? Or are you not surprised by it? Well, I think we should be surprised at it because the narrator, the writer wants to press home the point. Remember, Hebrew writings uh, repeats things. We, we put stuff in bold capital letters when we want to make a point. The Hebrew writing does it by repetition, repetition, repetition. It's why I think as preachers it's always good to repeat stuff. Not that we're Jewish. Well, look, where's the repetition? Verse 21, so David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Look at verse 22. But Abner, halfway through verse 22, but Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he'd gone in Peace. Verse 23, last sentence, the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. Abner was sent away in peace. There's no hatred, no animosity, no level of suspicion, no hint of revenge. David, the anointed king who is the savior from the Philistines and all the enemies, now acts as the peacemaker. He's the one that brings peace. And Abner has peace with the anointed king, David. He hasn't treated him as he deserves. He hasn't treated him as one who uh, uh, deserves uh, justice or judgment. But he's treated him with mercy and kindness. We might say that, mightn't we? Three times we're told this. Three times. Abner goes in peace, peace, peace. Now, some people read this and they just think they, uh, uh, Abner is weaving his way into the life of David. But I can't get away from what the text is telling me. Why is it that the uh, writer emphasizes the fact that Abner is sent away in peace? Well, we come to that at the end. But of course, not everyone sees it that way. We get on to our third um, uh, section in the larger section, which we're trying to get through. Um, not everyone likes, uh, sees it this way, do they? 
Uh, Joab certainly doesn't. He, this last uh, sort of section is a blood-curdling, evil, full of mourning and full of grief. Um, it just so happened, verse 22, uh, just so happened that David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with them in Hebron. Why? Because David had sent him away in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away in peace. Um, Abner, as he's making his exit, Joab arrives. David's commander-in-chief and his fighting men arrive back after a raid uh, with a great deal of plunder. Abner no longer in Hebron. Joab is told that Abner, the one that murdered chapter 2, his brother, remember? Ashiel, has been into Hebron to sing King David. And the king has sent him away. Well, verse 24, 25, what is Joab convinced of? That Abner is up to his tricks and he's come to spy out David in Hebron and he's going to come back and kill him. So verse 26 to 27, Joab leaves David, sends messengers after Abner. Oh, Abner, you've forgotten something. And Abner's going, well, I got sent away in peace. All is well. Must be okay. I'll head back to Hebron. Maybe they're going to pack me off with some turkeys for Christmas. Who knows? Well, he comes back not knowing anything about the planned assassination. And he arrives and Joab... Verse 27, takes him aside, takes him into the chamber as to speak with him privately. Oh, you have forgotten something. And then, avenging the blood of his brother, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Joab is bent on revenge. Look at verse 30. It's even put in parenthesis. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Ashiel at the battle of Gibeon. He executes it with brutality and with coldness that even verse 39, David is stunned by. And today, though I am anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to their deeds. And so, what is David's response? David's response, firstly, is innocent. Verse is 28 and verse 35. David needs the whole of the kingdom to know that he has not planned the murder of Abner. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. Let's face it, the, the, the tribes are just coming together. Could this be the thing that blows it apart again? Could David be seen as the instigator? Well, no, he's innocent. And his kingdom of innocent, free from accusation. But secondly, uh, in verses 29, uh, there's, he calls down curses upon Joab. Look at verse 29. May his blood fall on the head. May, may his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore, leprosy, or leans on a crutch, or falls by the sword, or who lacks food. These five curses upon Joab and his family are crippling, aren't they? Uh, from the leaking sword, to the leprous skin, to the crutch, to the sword, to the, 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 the lack of food. 
apart from meaning that they'll always be in need, unable to work because they're maimed, unable to be successful in battle, always going hungry. Yet I think the curses bring them outside of the covenant people of God, doesn't it? Isn't that what leprosy, isn't that what a leaking sore does? Removes you from the worshipping community of God? No longer able to head to the tabernacle or temple to present your uh, sacrifices, but you remain outside of the worshipping community of God's people? These curses aren't just that they'd have a tough life. They're curses of divine judgment. And thirdly, David calls all to mourn over the loss of this commander, verse 38. Then the king said to his men, do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? Verse 33, 34, the song of lament. <laughs> I love the fact that verse 31, Joab has to tear his clothes, put sackcloth on, and David makes him walk in front of the coffin as it's being transported. What do we get from this? What do we get from all of this? How do we, how do we think about um, these Old Testament narratives for our lives now? Well, I think there's four things that we can seek to try to rub some of the stuff home into us. Firstly, um, God's perfect plan. You see, we've made mention to it. When you look at Old Testament narrative, keep thinking biblical theology. Keep thinking, how do we get from two people in a garden with God as their king to a multitude in Revelation where a number from every tribe, tongue, and nation are innumerable people around the throne in a city of God. God's work is being worked out. God's purposes are being fulfilled even through this messed up world, through this messed up world when there's a, a, a cruel, cold-blooded murder, God is not off the throne. When there are disasters and all of what we see in our day and age, all that we would witness through the chapters of these Old Testament wars and fights and vengeance and, and blood stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 it would, it would, it would have an 18 on it, wouldn't it? You can't just show this on your TV screen, can you? I mean, the next chapter, someone's getting beheaded. Wow, we don't like that. That's banned on YouTube, isn't it? But we see through the brutality God still weaving the purposes of God through, uh, uh, through all of the messed up world. And especially seen through the messed up world as it crucifies Christ. So Acts chapter 2, you might want to turn to it. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Uh, how is God weaving his purposes through? Acts chapter 2 verse 22 uh, to 24. This great um, uh, passage where Peter stands up. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did amongst those through him as you 
yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You know, when we look at the Bible, it points us to the Lord Jesus. God's supreme plan of reconciling mankind to God culminates in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And as those on that road walk past, wagging their heads going, whoa, cursed is the man upon the tree. God is there in Christ reconciling the world to himself as it goes dark and Christ dies for our sins. The most deepest, darkest, messed up point in our history of the whole of the being of Christ upon the cross. God is at work. God is working out his purposes to rescue men and women, boys and girls. Isn't that wonderful? So as you read odd chapters like this, Ask yourself, what is God doing in this broken, messed up world? He's moving the people and the places. And he's growing his kingdom from a mustard seed of David, anointed in Bethlehem. David, anointed over Judah. David, in chapter 4 or 5, whichever it is, chapter 5, anointed over Israel, over Judah, over all people of God points us to King Jesus. So what is one thing that we should take from here? We live in a messed up, broken world. Brothers and sisters, do not despair. Do not lose heart. Do not give up hope. God is working his purposes. Christ is on the throne. And that may not mean much to you and me, in Leamington or Wandsworth. But it means heaps to our brothers and sisters around the globe that are suffering for their faith. Secondly, I want to just think about, secondly, thirdly, and fourthly, these uh, people. Joab. Joab stands as a warning to our hearts and convinces us of judgment to come. Joab's a military leader. And was throughout the whole of David's reign. I think he outlived even David. He's ruthless in battle. He's a skilled fighter. He's a leader of an army. But he seems to me to be a long way from the covenant people of God. He's outside of the people of God. I think that's what the leprosy and the sores are meant to indicate to us. The murder of Abner has enough verses written on it for us to be forced to see a window into Joab's heart. I don't claim divine knowledge to know how Joab, Abner, and even David thought about all of these things. But I think the scriptures tell us enough that we're to know that what his motives were were not anything to do with the kingdom of God. They were all about revenge. They were all about taking a life because another life had been taken of his brother. And the weird thing is, he seems to get away with it. Joab doesn't get punished by David in chapter 3. He outlives David. You'll see him even in, I think, 1 Kings. We think that he gets away with it, this cold-blooded murder. And that can be the way we think, can't it? 
How can the Joabs? Uh, how can the Joabs get away with it? How can um, uh, uh, how can those who do such evil things? The cry goes up. They need justice. Judgment should come, but they've got away with it. it might be some scandal. It might be some genocide. It might be some hatred. Some and the cry goes up. Why, O oh Lord? Why? Why do you let them get away with it? Oh, if I was God, I would do this, that, or the other. But there is a day of reckoning coming. Turn over to Romans 12. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Joabs of the world won't get away with it forever. It is appointed man to die once and after that face the judgment. Joab stands as a warning to us to not harden our hearts and to be certain that judgment will come. Of course, the problem is, is we point to the Joabs and we go, yeah, you need your comeuppance. The problem is, is actually what could be said of Joab is said of us. Well, you say, Stuart, I haven't murdered anyone. Yeah, but what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fall, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The problem with us is we're very quick to point at Joab and say, oh God, if I were you, I would deal with him. But we're very slow at pointing to ourselves and saying, oh, by the way, search me, oh God, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. Who here hasn't hated a brother or sister? Who here has wished someone was out of the way? It would be so much simpler. Of course, we're not going to stab someone in the stomach. We're far too polite for that, but we might murder them in our hearts. I think Joab stands as a warning to us. But secondly, Abner. I think Abner is a picture of sin. He is a rebel, isn't he? He shows us what sin is like. He, he installs Ishbosheth in chapter 2, even though chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 tell us he knew the word of the Lord. Isn't that ridiculous? He ignores, he defies the true and living God. He raises up his own king. He puts his own king on the throne in place of the real chosen anointed king. And that's what we do, isn't it? He's a picture of sin. We do the very same thing. We ignore God. We might know his word, but we resist it. And then we raise up our own little idols of our hearts. And we place them first and foremost in our lives that we will serve them, not the true and living God. Isn't that what you do? Isn't that what I do? Don't we just raise up those things that we think will be serving us and we're happy to serve them? Money, sex, fame, career, popularity, importance, identity. Of course, it ends up that the real king is us. We place the crown upon our own heads and we say, well, I'm Lord of my own life. 
God, you don't have rule in my life. Abner is a picture of sin as he raises up and installs the puppet king. And we do exactly the same. But there is an interesting picture of Abner, isn't it? There's a hope, isn't there? Because whilst every one of us in our sinful nature have raised up our own idols of our own heart and placed them in front and before God, I think Abner's a picture of repentance, don't you? Isn't there something about Abner that the text wants us to see? That Abner leaves the puppet king and he goes where? Back to the real king. We don't have the language of repentance here. But isn't that what's happening in the text? Yeah, I don't know all of Abner's motives. Commentators differ upon this. But I can't help but thinking, why does the scripture tell us Abner went in peace, in peace, in peace? Why is it that Abner feasts with the king? Isn't that what reconciliation is? Reconciliation is not just a ceasefire. Reconciliation is eating food together. Isn't Abner this picture of sin and rebellion and yet repentance and he turns to God's anointed and God's anointed doesn't treat him as he deserves, as his sin deserves, but treats him with grace and mercy and invites him into the banquet, into the feast and says, come on, have some chicken or whatever. I just think it's beautiful, isn't it, that Abner gives us hope For the deepest, darkest person in this room that has the deepest, darkest secrets. Repent. Turn to the anointed king. The saviour. The peacemaker. The rescuer. Turn to the one that bled upon the cross. Turn to the one who bore your sin in his body on that tree. Turn to the one who says, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I shall give you rest. Rest for your soul. Well, that leads us finally on to David. David, he is the imperfect king. I mean, how can he have so many wives? What is he doing? We know that that's wrong. And yet he's the imperfect king, yet we know he he points to David's greater son, doesn't he? He points us to the king of kings. And isn't David interesting? Here he's clearly not perfect. But David points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect king. And he's seen in chapter 2 and chapter 3 as the peacemaker. Constantly through these chapters, you see him as the one who's acting like the prince of peace. The one who brings about the kingdom, not through violence of Joab, but through peaceful means. Oh yeah, he will be a warrior. But he's seeking to bring the people of God under the anointed king. Many times in these chapters, David could have drawn the sword. Yet he's concerned with peace and unity. Of course, Christ is not the imperfect peacemaker. He is the king of kings. He is the perfect peacemaker. And he is the one who reconciles us to God. And you know, as we close, if you've been reconciled to God, joined together in the church family here, 
What is it that Jesus would want you to be? Surely a peacemaker? Seeking to reach out to the loss outside of these walls, often, but not solely, but often inside the walls as well. To be a peacemaker, saying you can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Is that what your heart is about? Seeking to be a peacemaker, bringing people to the Prince of Peace? And then in church, don't churches go through some funny times? And, and sometimes there's a little bit of a differing of ways. What are you going to do in your life of church? Be a peacemaker, Jesus would say. Be a peacemaker with those that you differ with. Be a peacemaker like Christ who says, blessed are the peacemakers. What has um, a chapter like this got to do with us? Well, surely... It is to see God's kingdom purposes from a mustard seed of growing and under the king will be fulfilled one day. Don't lose hope. Be warned about Joab's. Be encouraged by your Abner's. And live like a David. But live better still in Christ, the Prince of Peace. And be reconciled to him and be a peacemaker. Let me pray. And we will sing. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would remove the dross of what I've said. Uh, but your word alone would be heard. And Lord, by your spirit, you would fashion and shape our hearts. Maybe for someone who doesn't know Jesus, have never repented, has not trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. May you even work in their lives tonight to do that. May we be encouraged to know that you are building your church. The kingdom of God will come, has come in power and authority in the Lord Jesus, but will be seen, as we read earlier, where every eye shall see and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Help us to take the warnings and the encouragements from this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.